This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I find myself having to apologize a bit for the scratchy voice, which will characterize today's program. I believe I picked up a bit of a virus on an airplane. You know, planes are notorious for being great ways to spread viruses since they don't change the air within that aluminum tube very often. To do so apparently costs fuel, and it's all about saving money in the fuel, isn't it? Well, not for the passenger so much. Of course, I guess I shouldn't complain. There's been some rather hair-raising news in in the media of late of uh, what can happen to you on an airplane. But I really don't want to go into that. As we've not had an original program for the last couple of weeks, uh, owing to the fact that Mr. Millen and I are working very hard on, uh, well, I I guess you'd call it a video documentary based on some of my family members who, um... Well, I have some very interesting stories to tell about life in the Hawaiian Islands. One of my aunts, bless her heart, age 95, allowed us to put the camera in front of her last year and tell, tell some tales out of school. We edited this, uh, at least a preliminary version of it, and ran it back to, uh, to Hawaii to get looked at, and um, it was well received, I'm glad to report have to say, this, this video thing is kind of cool. We, we've been doing radio for 20 years, but having pictures to go along with your voice, well, that's quite a step up. And, you know, we depend upon people contributing to this program. We want to thank Michael for his uh, passing along a book from a man named David Elliard titled Who Invented What When. There's a chapter in there about television going on the air. And uh, mention is made of Vladimir Zworkin and Philo Farnsworth. We would refer you to our archives for the wonderful program we did about Philo T. Farnsworth. We interviewed the author of a book titled The Last Lone Inventor. This book seems to give a lot of credit to Vladimir Zworkin, but our understanding from that interview years ago was that uh, David Sarnoff of the Radio Corporation of America promoted Zworkin over Farnsworth because that worked out better for him financially. This could be a recurring theme today. In fact, let's take an abrupt detour, as we are wont to do in this program, and talk about an invention that didn't pan out, that somehow may be saving some people money because I'm not sure why it's still around. What am I speaking of? Well, when you go to a hotel and you go to use the bathtub or sometimes bathtub-shower combination, you may note that on the floor there's a device you're supposed to press down to seal the tub and then reach down and press down again when you want it to pop up and let the water drain out. I have been in hotels all over the world and can say, I think, with some degree of assurance that these things never work. I'm, I'm not sure they work when they're new. I had one such system in my own bathtub at home many years back, It worked for a short while. And it's not to say that you can't push down on them and have them seal the tub. It's just that they don't stay down. Well, they don't always seal either. So there's a solution for this. Those of you who would like to travel, we encourage all of you 
to travel because, as Mark Twain once pointed out, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Mr. Twain is right about this. One should travel. When you do travel, take along one of those rubber plugs for bathtubs like the one I was just describing. When you push the plunger down and it stays down for a few seconds, just long enough for you to climb in the tub and then have it pop up at an inopportune moment, well, there's just no reason for you to go through that. What you do is you unscrew the device, get your rubber plug, drop it in place, enjoy your bath. In fact, as I'm telling you this, I'm holding in my right hand (laughs) something described as tub stopper, one and one half to two. It worked very well. And for your travel kit, I would also like to recommend, since many misguided hotels around the world have decided that the compact fluorescent is a way to light the room cheaply, the compact fluorescent bulb is, in fact, an invention of Satan. At least that's our working hypothesis here at Radio Parallax, because although you can turn them on and they will illuminate somewhat the room you're in, well, you can't read by them, you can't... Uh, you, you, I'm not sure what you can do by them. Well, actually, I can think of a few things you could do by them that don't require light. But if actual light is a priority, what you should do is put in your travel kit a small light bulb, one of maybe 60 watts, 100 watts. That'll get you through the night. So go to your hotel room, unscrew the compact fluorescent, screw in a proper light bulb, and then after a nice hot bath, relax and enjoy. Yes, so when you make that travel kit, don't forget, rubber plug, proper light bulb. Oh, and it's not a bad idea to also have, you know, a proper, relatively compact LED flashlight. Can't tell you how many times that has saved the day. You know, some correspondents have suggested also that we might want to consider adding fresh set of batteries when you go to use the clicker on the television and you find that the batteries are really low. Now, the front desk is supposed to help out with things like that, but you know how it is. Bird in the hand, worth two in the bush. Since we've been absent for a couple of weeks, we'd like to promote um, what we will hope to bring you for the rest of this month in November. We, we think we'll probably have fresh shows throughout this month. On our wish list would be Jane Mayer. I've started to read her marvelous book, Dark Money. It got rave reviews for a reason. And it's especially curious to contemplate what she's writing about in terms of dark money and the political system and how Donald Trump was theoretically outside of the camp of the Koch brothers, but but now he's back inside the big tent. Actually, it's a rather small tent. The intro to the book, which is an update of uh, last year's version of it, talks about how in 2009 the Kochs held a meeting down in Indian Wells near, uh, near Palm Springs to deal with the crisis of Barack Obama being elected president. The Kochs decided that they, they and their billionaire friends needed to double down on moving the country, the entire country, the entire Republican Party in the direction they wanted to see it moved. They have been disturbingly successful in this. And although Donald Trump was the only candidate back in 2016, they did not feel was fit to be president. When he unexpectedly won the election, they managed to put their people in his administration in a big way. Great book. I don't know whether we'll be able to get Jane Mayer, but we, we, I think we'll try. Someone we do expect to bring you is the author Roland Phillips. His book titled A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald McLean, we think is something we'd like to talk about. 
If you've never heard of the Cambridge Five, dear listener, you you should have. You should be familiar with them. They were possibly the most notable spies for the Soviet Union in the Allied camp uh, ever. Until I read this book, I did not realize how important Donald McLean had been to Joseph Stalin and the USSR. But apparently all of the traffic that went between the United States and the UK, the two allies of the West, uh, was fed to Stalin. In fact, due to um, security concerns, Stalin sometimes knew about what was going on before the other ally did. It's a matter of historical record that when FDR passed away, his successor, Harry Truman, knew nothing about the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. Stalin, on the other hand, already knew all about it. Someone else we hope to bring you? Well, probably next week. Next week's program is a gentleman who is intent upon having his body flown out of the solar system after he passes. Over the years, Radio Parallax has had some odd solicitations, and I don't think any are odder than this one. So odd was it, in fact, that we're going we're gonna to talk a bit about it. As far as we know, he has not yet worked out the details, technically, of how it is he's going to have his corpse sent out beyond Pluto. Personally, I'm thinking ion engines, but, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist. Mr. Bermillon does offer up the possibility of using dilithium crystals. But I don't know. As far as I know from Mr. Scott, you're not supposed to mix matter and antimatter cold. I don't know. Oh, and by the way, apparently a an astrophysicist or an astronomer or, I don't know, maybe it's the janitor at Harvard, has now suggested that that visitor from beyond the solar system that came whipping past the sun a few months ago may actually be an alien spacecraft. Now, as we pointed out on this program many times over the years, anytime you see a headline that has may in it, what follows often tends to be, well, a bit fuzzy. For example, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch for the astronomer or janitor or whatever he was to suggest that the object may have been a Romulan spacecraft. Or as Mr. Millen would even add, a tuna fish sandwich. Anyway, you know when you travel, you like to take along a bunch of books. When you go to a place like Hawaii, you generally don't do a whole lot of reading. But there was the possibility due to the weather report of constant thunderstorms that I was going to be indoors a lot. I took along Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, which... I quoted on this program a few weeks ago and uh, finished while on this voyage. And in the wake of all this uh, hubbub, all the Republicans trying to make a big deal about this caravan set to invade America coming up from Central America, which I think more than one wag along the way has pointed out, oh, yeah, these people are going to come up. Next thing you know, they're going to be cleaning our toilets. They'll be picking our fruit, washing our dishes. Do we want that? And in that vein, I would like to quote from Anthony Bourdain and his afterword from Kitchen Confidential. The true backbone of the American restaurant industry, however, remains largely Latino. As long as American kids are absent from the dishwasher station, there will be Mexicans and Ecuadorians entering the business in great numbers. Soon, inevitably, to be seen by chefs as the better bet for prep work, then guard manager, then line positions. Unlike their more upwardly mobile peers, they are seen as less likely to move on as being more stable and reliable, thereby promising chefs the kind of stability and continuity we all cherish. They're the ones the incoming white boys look to to learn the ropes, and they're the ones who remain behind when the white boys move on to the next thing. 
Something to keep in mind when you see the almost inevitably white celebrity chef on television or public appearances or in an award ceremony is that back at their restaurant, it's often Latino kitchen workers who are making it possible for them to even be there. Anyway, back to present time. Uh, We had an election this week in the United States. I guess we should talk about that, shouldn't we? In the wake of Donald Trump's stellar performance as chief executives, the Republicans gained seats in the Senate. Of course, it should be pointed out that the Senate of the United States, like our Electoral College, represents a compromising government made back by our founding fathers that uh, is still harming this great experiment in democracy that is the United States of America. Wyoming, with a population of 580,000, gets two senators. California, with a population, you know, 35 million, whatever we are, also gets two senators. Now, I've not done the math on, on, on how many senators, say, the lowest population in the 50 states um, represent, but I'll bet it's less than one-fourth of the population, and they do represent a group that is not very diverse, that's mostly white, and therefore, for some reason, are falling victim to this incredible marketing success of Donald Trump and the Republicans, including you know what the Koch brothers have been up to to convince the blue-collar American that Donald Trump is out there and the Republican Party is out there working for them. While driving around in Hawaii this past week, I had a choice between NPR and right-wing cranks. And I must confess, I spent some time listening to the right-wing cranks because, doggone it, it was inspirational to want to come back and talk into this microphone. Because the fact of the matter is, here at Radio Parallax, we try to base opinions largely upon actual facts. Sadly, this is probably why we're not being heard in Hawaii, except on the Internet. Michael Medved was one of the uh, arch-conservatives pontificating on things. And it did take me back to the time we had his former partner, David Wallachinsky, on this program, talking about some of the world's worst tyrants. And when the interview was concluded, I had one final question for Mr. Wallachinsky, about his former collaborator, Michael Medved, who, by the way, allegedly at one point was a speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy. And I asked how it is he managed to go over to the side he's on now. Wallachinsky laughed at that question, paused and said, well, I think uh, Michael took a good hard look at who was paying the best and made made his choices accordingly. Anyway, I've not yet have a, had a chance to listen to Donald Trump's uh, press conference after the election. I, I hear it's rather surreal. But, I mean, I don't know. There's so many articles we could quote about how I mean, it's just generally acknowledged that whatever comes out of his mouth is just, it's just whatever he feels like saying. There's no correlation to actual reality. Case in point, let's talk about what he said on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. He expressed confidence we, they were going to get to the bottom of this whole Jamal Khashoggi thing. Oh, and by the way, if you're keeping score, the Saudis have now admitted that it was a hit, just that it had nothing to do with Mohammed bin Salman. This is somewhat, I'm sure, closer to the truth than the previous theory was that he died in a fistfight, or the previous story that everything was fine, he left the embassy. Well, we do know now that he evidently did leave the embassy, just that he left in several suitcases. But back to 60 Minutes. (laughs) Well, let's just relate one of the exchanges that took place. 
Sir, as a president of the United States, is it appropriate to call women, and even one who's making serious allegations and who you are in litigation against, to call her a horse face? Trump, you know what? You could take it any way you want. How should we take it? Trump, did you see the letter? She put out a letter. I had nothing to do with her. So she can lie, and she can do whatever she wants to do. She can hire a phony lawyer. You take a look at this guy, a stone-cold loser. You take a look at his past. They can say anything about me. I'm just saying, I just speak for myself. You take a look, and you make your own determination. Asked about one of the two issues with Stormy Daniels being resolved, Trump said, well, you have to speak to the lawyers. I don't even know what the lawyers are doing, but they are very good lawyers. They'll figure it out. Asked about uh, the hurricane that hit Florida, whether this might have something to do with global warming. Trump said the following, and, and God dang it, you just can't make this kind of stuff up. Trump, I agree, the climate changes, but it goes back and forth, back and forth, so we'll see. I mean, you know, I'm a person who believes very, very strongly in the environment. At this point in time, we're tempted to do the two-minute clip of Clark and Dawes, the front fell off, or at the end they describe how the ship has been towed out of the environment, into another environment. No, it's being towed out of the environment. It's not in an environment. So, yes, just keep in mind, (laughs) the president says, I'm a person that believes very, very strongly in the environment. And doggone it, I was trying not to do too much Trump, but you you, you, you can't avoid it. Writing in the WashingtonPost.com, Paul Waldman said recently that President Trump's reckless use of his cell phone is mind-boggling. Despite repeated warnings from security officials, Trump insists on calling confidants from his unsecured iPhone. The New York Times reported that U.S. spy agencies have discovered that Russia and China routinely listen in. Not so long ago, Trump and the Republicans insisted Hillary Clinton's use of private email servers was criminal because it potentially exposed secrets to foreign surveillance. And chance of lock her up became to Trump rallies what Freebird is to Leonard Skinner concerts. So why have Republican congressmen and conservative pundits reacted to this news with hypocritical silence? Good question. Joshua Bernstein in Bloomberg.com said Trump could just use a secured landline to call his chums, but he doesn't want his aides knowing whom he calls. Plus, his iPhone contains his list of contacts, so he's jeopardizing national security to avoid the inconvenience of dialing. It is yet another reminder, said Bernstein in Bloomberg, that Trump is wildly unfit for office. Jonathan Chayton, nymag.com, note that, well, there's some good news and bad news in this story. While the bad news is, of course, is that foreign powers are listening into the president's iPhone conversations, the good news is, and this comes from White House aides apparently, is that Trump can't possibly be giving away much of value on these calls because he pays little attention to intelligence briefings and knows little about our nation's military and covert operations. Well, there you have it. I think we'll put off uh, talking about Trump and the IMF treaty signed by Reagan and Gorbachev um, to another day. We do want to note that even a magazine like New Scientist is unable to avoid Trump's bloviations. They noted in the November 3rd issue that Trump's cleanest air in the world boast is, well, it's just not true. On October 22nd, Trump took to Twitter to declare the U.S. has the cleanest air in the world by far. His tweet included a map based on data gathered by the World Health Organization. And, of course, upon further analysis, it turns out that his assertion was completely wrong. What a surprise! 
It probably would have been better if the president had actually read the World Health Organization study before he passed along his tweet. But why start now? And I promise we're going to get the topic of the president very shortly. One more. The Republicans were trying to blame the Democrats for incivility in the nation. Greg Sargent writing in the WashingtonPost.com said, What disingenuous nonsense. The GOP stands united behind an authoritarian president who repeatedly urged violence against protesters at his campaign rallies, who threatens political opponents with jail, who regularly uses Twitter and raucous mob rallies to harass and belittle anyone, especially women and minorities, who dares challenge him. And we don't know whether there's anything to do with the problems of former NFL player Ray Carruth, who was released from prison this week after serving nearly 18 years in the murder of the mother of his unborn child. But Carruth did note that although he was excited about leaving prison, he fears how the public will treat him, saying, quote, it just seems like there's so much hate and negativity towards me, unquote. Well, perhaps the president will invite Ray Carruth over to the Oval Office. All right, on to Election Day. Gavin Newsom was elected governor of California. Big surprise. There's apparently quite a comprehensive interview about uh, Gavin in The New Yorker, which we will read and report on in the future. We have taken the viewpoint on this program that uh, our future governor has all of the gravitas of a helium balloon. But we hope, we hope very much, he proves us wrong. Good way to do that right off the bat might be to cancel Jerry Brown's twin tunnels scheme to siphon more water out of the California Delta and send it to real estate developers and ag interests that are sometimes big Democratic Party contributors. We'll see. Gavin has served capably in his role as California's lieutenant governor. I believe that the lieutenant governor position was invented so that when the governor croaks, they don't have to hold a special election. We think the lieutenant governor does have other obligations and responsibilities. We just don't know what they are. It's not all that often that the lieutenant governor manages to then wheedle his way into the top spot. Gray Davis did it, I believe. And real estate developer Angelo Sakopoulos certainly hopes that his daughter, Eleni Koulinakis Sakopoulos, might follow in Gavin's footsteps. She got elected lieutenant governor this week on the strength of daddy's money. And the fact that Daddy managed to get her appointed the ambassador to Hungary some years ago. Proposition 10, the one that would have allowed rent control to be more freely imposed by local cities, went down in flames. I did note one ad saying that, uh, that, it, it, that the opponents had outspent the advocates two to one. That might be true, but an equally appropriate headline might have been the ballot measure lost two to one, which does give one... A little bit of optimism about people's common sense. The idea that you're going you're gonna to improve the housing situation in California by imposing rent control, it just, well, I find that a bit mind-boggling. We're sorry to see that down in the state of Texas, Ted Cruz managed to get reelected. And an issue that I promise that we're going to take up again in the near future is the problems America's having with voting. Driving around in the Hawaiian Islands, I heard that uh, the polls had just opened in Georgia and already the lines were three hours long. Georgia uses electronic voting. Remember the Help America Vote Act? Well, we hope you do because we talked about it a lot on this program some years back and how electronic voting systems were uh, a great way to just flat-out steal elections. 
I don't know. Let's quit talking about this and talk about uh, a summary from the perspective a week down the road when things might come into clearer focus. The House did go Democratic. People always seem to talk about the parties and, you know, the party this and the party that. And it is a fact that the party that is in the majority then gets to control the chairmanships of all the committees. And this does give quite a bit of an edge when it comes to passing legislation in Congress in both the House and the Senate. But my question is, where does it say in the U.S. Constitution that the majority power gets to control the committees? I'm pretty sure that's nowhere to be found in our founding paperwork. I know for a fact that our founding fathers felt back in the late 1780s, early 1790s, that if we ever got the party system that was so prevalent in Great Britain here in America, we would be screwed. We think this, yet again, shows their great foresight because by half century later, parties ruled the roost. And, uh, well, just to quote from Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, the Kochs and their fellow mega-donors succeeded in their chief political objective in 2016, which was to keep both houses of Congress under conservative Republican control, ensuring that they could continue to advance their corporate agenda. They succeeded in their secondary goal, too, which was to further crush the Democratic Party by continuing the nationwide sweep of state legislatures and local offices that they had begun in 2010. By controlling state houses, they could dominate not just legislation, but also the gerrymandering of congressional districts in hopes of securing their grip on the House of Representatives for years to come. Luckily, it appears that their grip on the House has been at least temporarily broken just two years later. Whether this will translate into meaningful uh, improvements in the lives of the rest of us, the, the people who are not in the upper 0.1%, remains to be seen. Anyway, we just got word that Jeff Sessions uh, is out as Attorney General. What this has to do with the Mueller investigation and whether Robert Mueller is going to roll over and say, well, we don't have enough to show that there was uh, something afoot here that uh, would be an impeachable offense or that we're going to prosecute over. We don't know. That is our, that is our great fear, that um, this will be another whitewash. Radio Parallax has taken the position... If you're a long-time listener, you, you know this, that a lot of blue-ribbon government panels set up to look into things generally don't uncover things. You know, it was great. They took uh, Angelo Sokopoulos' um, boy, Phil Angelides, and Democrats made him in tr- put him in charge of the investigation of what happened in 2008. And by God, he did come to some conclusions. He did point out that there had been on Wall Street some irresponsible behavior. Nobody was prosecuted, of course. And a lot of the rules that were in effect then remain in effect today. But, of course, the agenda of the conservative Republicans is to have even less government oversight over the machinations of Wall Street. You know, it's occurring to us on this program that there may be a triumvirate ruling the United States. What do you think, dear listener? Take the oil industry as one leg take Wall Street bankers as the other leg, and take the Silicon Valley tech companies as the third leg, and ask yourself how much of what goes on in this country is being directed from those three power centers. I guess we could talk about uh, the Pentagon and how much of the resources 
of this nation are going toward building more bombs and continuing a war in Afghanistan that appears to have no goals, we can see. And of course, the action arm that gets things done when things need to get done seems to be intelligence agencies, the CIA and its brethren, which unfortunately seem to be deeply in bed with Silicon Valley. But then, as we've discovered recently, so are the Saudis. But we're not going to go into that right now. Let's, let's end on a positive note. Take a break here, shall we? I'm looking around for a positive note. Well, maybe it's not exactly a positive note, but it is a follow-up note. More than once in this program, we referred to the mantis shrimp. I think it first came up when we were talking about pigments in the eye. It turns out the manta, mantis shrimp has 16. We humans only have three. Well, what gives this creature a powerful reputation is the fact that allegedly it can break the aquarium glass that it is placed in. So we'd like to cite a letter that appeared in New Scientist from a man named Rob Gunnett, writing from London. You describe a mantis shrimp that creates a force that shatters aquarium glass. This is simply not true. I'm a senior aquarium service technician with over 25 years of experience, and this is one of those stories that gets tossed around, yet there's no actual proof of it ever happening. Well, there you have it. If you have any insight about this, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 